All right, so let's start over again with the sermon, shall we? <clears throat> uh, Genesis chapter 11. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 11. So last week we looked at the first covenant, which is the Noahic covenant. And I wanted to stress there that the covenant was about one thing in particular. It was in the covenant oath of Genesis 9 verse 11. And that particular thing was um, that God would never again bring upon the earth a worldwide flood. That was what the oath was about. And I don't think there's anybody here that doubts that oath. There's nobody here that believes that God is not going to bring a worldwide flood upon the earth. So, we take God at his word because God has made an oath to do that. So, What about every other covenant? What about this covenant, the covenant that we're going to look at today with Abraham? Can we look at that covenant and can we say that God likewise means what he says? Can we go to the covenant with David and say God means what he says? Can we look at the covenant that God made with Phinehas? Which some of you may not be aware of, but it's in Numbers chapter 25. Of a perpetual priesthood. And can we say that God means what he says? Because he's sworn an oath to do it. And finally, can we say, when we look at the new covenant that God has made with us, and that will make with Israel that God means what he says in the terms of that new covenant towards us, which is in the Gospels? The answer should be yes. (laughs) And the answer should be an unequivocal yes. In other words, a yes that he's not got a yes, but he's going to change a few things. Okay? Okay? It's not like, yes, but, you know, because Jesus has come and died on the cross, because things have changed, we have to change what those covenants mean today. No. The answer that we should give is that because God has taken an oath to do these things, he cannot change those oaths. He's the one who entered into them. He's the one who swore by them. And when you swear an oath in a covenant, you can't change it. You can't come along and doctor it or tinker with it. Do you see? You might add something to it, but you're not going to take away anything that you've previously pledged to do. 
And this is so important for us to realize. I'm afraid very few Christians pay attention to this. God makes oaths for us so that we will trust him, so that we will know what he's going to do. We all know about the grand plan that he has for humanity and for the world. So just as with the covenant with Noah, this covenant that we're going to look at, at least start to look at today with Abraham, means what it says. Now we're going to start in chapter 11, because in chapter 11 we have the story of the Tower of Babel. I'm not going to review that. We had a look at it briefly, but the Tower of Babel was all about mankind independent from God, doing his own thing, wanting to make a name for themselves. That's what we have, by the way, in most of the world today. Mankind independent of God wanting to do their own thing. What they want to do nowadays is build a one-world government, and they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing towards that from different angles, by the way. They want to recreate Babel, in a sense, in the modern age. God may well let them do it, by the way, this time, at least for a short time. But back in Genesis 11, God dispersed them by just changing their language so that they couldn't understand one another and were speaking past one another. And therefore, what he wanted for mankind to disperse upon the face of the earth happened irregardless of what man wanted to do. God's will will always prevail. It doesn't matter uh, how many smart, intelligent, tricky, clever, wealthy, powerful human beings gang up together and and, uh, come together to oppose him, God's will always prevails. And we can be sure of that and take heart in that. But from the Tower of Babel, we... Uh, from verse 10, get a genealogy, and there's uh, quite a few genealogies in the book of Genesis. This is the genealogy of Noah's son, Shem, who in chapter 9, by the way, has a special blessing from God. Why is there this genealogy from Shem? Well, because when we get down to verse 26, we come across the name Abram, do you see that? Abram, that's Abraham, as he will come to be known. So Abraham, I'm just going to use that term, Abraham is a descendant of Shem. He was Shemitic, or what we would say nowadays, Semitic. Okay, Semitic is what, what it comes from. And then we get another kind of continuing genealogy from 
Abraham's father, Terah, in verse 27. I'm just going to read quickly and make a couple of comments and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. That, by the way, is they found the site of that, and that is in uh, southern Iraq. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, what is he doing here, the author, Moses? What's he doing giving us that little detail about Sarah? That she was barren. He is setting us up for the story that he's about to tell about Abraham and the covenant and the promised child. So before we even get to the Abrahamic covenant or the promise, the promises of God in chapter 12 and and on, we're told that there's a problem or going to be a problem with the fulfillment of at least, well, most of the aspects of, uh, of these promises of God. It's like, God, have you thought through this, uh, this issue before making these promises? Have you been a little bit rash here? Because after all, uh, you can hardly make a great nation of him and you can hardly give him land and so on. And you can hardly bless the rest of the world through him if Abraham's just going to grow old and die with his wife, not producing anyone to uphold his name. That's the problem. That's the crux there that gets in the way of the story that's about to be told. And this, by the way, is often the way. There seem to be insuperable barriers sometimes to God coming through on what he's promised to do. And because of those barriers, we, human beings, particularly when we start to be independent in our thinking, we will say, well, okay, God mustn't have meant it that way. He must have meant it in another way. Maybe... To give an example, maybe it's the spiritual seed or descendants of Abraham who are important. By the way, there's a lot of Christians that hold that view. Not that they don't believe that Abraham and Sarah had a child, a miraculous birth, uh, because she was so old. They do. But it's, they still now believe that the church, which is mainly Gentiles, not uh, genealogically connected to Abraham, that they are the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 
In other words, the spiritual children of Abraham, not literal children of Abraham or descendants of Abraham, fulfill the promise. That's how many Christians interpret it. So yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel and all of that, they believe in all of that. But quite honestly, if all that God meant was spiritual descendants, he could have just let Abraham die, couldn't he? Without having any child. I mean, he'd come out the same way. Why go all through all of the rigmarole? that you read of in the book of Genesis. The the economic way of doing it was saying, oh, well, Abraham had faith, and anyone who has faith like Abraham, they're Abraham's seed and have done with it. So I want you to consider that, you see. The fact that Sarah is barren, It doesn't get in the way of God, but it might get in the way of certain things like this, other examples of this, might get in the way of the way we interpret the promises of God. Modern day, uh, when I say modern day, the last 500 years or so, people have said, well, before 1918, there are, There isn't a land of Israel, 1948, sorry. There isn't a land of Israel anymore. So what about all these promises to Israel of land and, you know, the blessings on Jerusalem and so on? We have to spiritualize them, you see. Because God, in the same way that he couldn't give a seed to Sarah, if there's no Israel, then all of these promises have to be spiritualized and given to somebody else. And that's what they've done. They've just spiritualized the promises that we're going to look at and given them to the church. Even though these promises are given in an oath by God. What does that mean? What it means is that these people believe that covenants can change. They can be warped. They can be altered. They can, the words that that are sworn can mean different things, things that they didn't appear to mean when they were spoken. I do not hold to that view. And I don't think you should either. I think that the whole point of God making an oath to do something is so that we will believe he's going to do it. And that oath is good enough for us. And whatever obstacles come up that we think God can't overcome, it's not our problem. It's God's problem. And we should be faithful enough to say, okay, if that's what God says, that's what God's going to do. And the fulfillment of all of those promises, that's his problem, not my problem. I'm just going to trust that God means what he says. And he's quite capable of fulfilling his covenants. 
Sarah was barren. She had no child. Okay. Is that going to get in the way of everything that comes from chapter 12 through to chapter 22 with Abraham? No, it is not. Although, even Abraham is going to struggle in his faith, in believing that God is actually as good as his word. We will see that in the coming weeks. Now, um, as I explained a little earlier, Ur of the Chaldees was a pagan nation. It wasn't a godly um, in Mesopotamia. It was pagan. It was a pagan city. They estimate that it had approximately 25,000 inhabitants, which for the ancient world, that makes it quite a big and major city in the ancient world. And it also appears that the, uh, like Terah and Haran and Nahor, uh, these are names that are also names of Mesopotamian cities of the ancient world. So whether there is a connection between the family of Abraham and these cities, we're not sure, but it could be that these are, this was a major and a very important family from that region, which means that Abraham, if this is true, Abraham would have had some status in that area. He would have uh, had deep family roots in that area. And the notion of God showing up and telling him to leave everything behind and go on a journey to who knows where would have been all the more difficult for him. Please don't think when we read these uh, Bible stories that the people that were living them out who had to do what God told them to do, that it was easy for them. It wasn't. It wasn't easy. But when it comes to obeying God, it's not got to do with whether it's easy to do it or not. It's whether we're going to do it or not. That's the important thing. That's what God looks for. Is God going to come first? So in chapter 12 and verse 1, we read this. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And Abraham said, okay, Lord, I just have one question. Where am I supposed to go to? If you just answer that question for me, then I'll up roots, up stakes. I'll say goodbye to the family and I'll be off. Just, just let me know where you want me to go. That's the paraphrase. That's what we would have liked, liked to uh, have put in there, or certainly what Abraham would have liked to have heard. God to say, well, actually, we're going to go up north, up to Haran there. That's, a, you know, 500 miles or so up there. And then we're going to drop down into Canaan. going to take you a few months probably to get there. But uh, 
by the way, we know from the ancient world that people did travel on that route, okay? This was not kind of new to Abraham. People did travel on that route in those days, about 2,000 years before Christ. But God didn't say that. God didn't say that. So Abraham went out not knowing, the New Testament says, where he was going. Is that unreasonable of God not to tell him? After all, he's he's, uh, forsaken his family, his town, his roots. He's going on his long journey, and who knows how long it's going to be. Can't God just be reasonable and tell him where he's going? Do you have a, ever have kind of conversations like that with God? God, can you can just be a bit more reasonable and give me a bit more information or a bit more encouragement here to do what you want me to do? Why, why is it so hard? You know, the answer comes back. God's word to us ought to be enough. Because God is who he is, when he tells us to do something, that's it. He's God, we're the creature, we obey. And in, in the midst of that, we tell ourselves the truth about God. He's good, he's wise. He's never going to ask us to do something for no good reason. So even though we might not know the reason, there is a reason and we can trust God and just leave it with him as we obey. Abraham had to do that if he was going to obey God, which is what he did. He went to a land that God would show him. And then verse 2, here's the promise. I will make you a great nation. That's the first of the promises. I will bless you, this is verse 2, and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. So there's some protection there. And then the third aspect of the promise, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So these are, these are big things here that are involved, particularly the first and the last. I will make you a great nation. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Chaldeans where he came from. Not just the uh, people of the Middle East even. But all of the families of the earth. Also, by the way, meaning historically after him. There's another aspect of the promise that we need to look at, 
And it goes with the first promise of making a great nation from Abraham, and that is the uh, issue of land. If Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation, they need somewhere to live, don't they? So verse 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, this is when he's actually got to Canaan, To your descendants I will give this land. So this is the third main aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. The first is that Abraham will be the father of a great nation. The second is that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And the third is that the land, once he's arrived there, will be given to that nation that comes from Abraham. Of course, the the fourth is that I will make your name great. So there's quite a few promises that God's making here. How is God going to do this? When is God going to do this? Is it going to happen straight away as soon as Abraham arrives in Canaan? God, like some magic genie, says, okay, well, you've made it here. Here, here's your seed, and here's the land, and this is now yours. And maybe I'll add some years onto you so you can start to see that a great nation is going to come from you. None of those things actually happen in the story of Abraham. But we'll get to that. God makes these promises. And he makes these promises on the basis of a plan or a project that God has. And this plan of God is not something that he's cobbled together as history starts to unfurl and uh, the post-flood world starts to get messed up. This is something that God has always known. This is a plan now coming uh, to its, well, at least its inception in time. And this plan, this covenant with Abraham is still in force today. But it hasn't been completely fulfilled. Not 4,000 years later. Israel has really never been a great nation. Now they reach some prominence in the time of David and Solomon. After that, started to wane a bit. Well, David and Solomon reigned in a combined reign of 80 years, but really David didn't reign in Jerusalem for the first seven years of his reign. So, you know, we can cut that back to 70-odd years. 70-odd years isn't very long. And Israel was not the most prominent nation in the world in any of those times. So, the promise of I will make you a great nation still really hasn't been fulfilled. What about the land? Well, as we will find out when we get to chapter 15, the size of the land, the expanse of the land, 
is given in more detail, and Israel have never occupied as the owners of that land all that God had promised to them. Never. They just were confined to a little strip there in the Levant. So that hasn't come to fruition either. What about all of the families of the earth being blessed through him? Well, that certainly has started to be fulfilled in the church since the time of Christ. So we can say that to a great extent that has been fulfilled, although there's more fulfillment of that ahead. But here we are, we're only in the 12th chapter of a big book, the Bible, and God's making these big plans and these uh, big promises. But we read it and we look at history and we look at the world and we think, well, God really hasn't come through on any of these. All right, Abraham's name is great. We'll give you that one. But as far as Israel being a great nation, Abraham would have had in his mind, I think, far more than what happened in the reigns of David and of Solomon. He would have been thinking uh, along the lines of the great Egyptian uh, dynasties. Now, that's a great nation, yes? Ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon, something like that, or the Hittite nation. All of them being much more uh, famous, much greater than Israel ever was. And as far as the land is concerned and they're um, actually having that land, well, that really, when you think about it, when you analyze it, not really much to that either. Israel only occupied, again, a certain amount of that land during the time of Solomon. They did manage to have authority. They didn't own it, but because they had... uh, invaded part of these lands, they did have authority or jurisdiction in a larger area of the ancient Middle East going over to uh, Damascus and so on and so forth. But only for a short time. I mean, what happened at the end of Solomon's reign? You tell me. You know what happened at the end of Solomon's reign. He turned to false gods, didn't he? And then what about his son, Rehoboam? Well, during his times, the kingdom of Israel was divided. And then all of the ten tribes that went with Jeroboam and left the Davidic uh, connection, none of the kings were good kings. They all apostatized. And God eventually sent them off in like 722, 725 B.C. That was it. Shipped them off to Assyria. 200 years later, the two southern tribes that were left, they were shipped off to Babylon. So we have a really kind of, I don't know, there's not much of a fulfillment going on. I mean, this is uh, 
if this is all there is to the covenant, this is all there is to the promise, then there were other nations that did much better than this, and they didn't have a promise from God. And the question is, does this, is this the way we interpret the word of God when we come across these covenants? That we, we interpret them in such kind of anticlimactic terms? For many Christians, the answer to that is yes. Oh, Israel had their promised land, they say. And, you know, the book of Joshua tells us about that. And the book of First Kings tells us about that. Everything was fulfilled. So as far as the, the promise of land, that was fulfilled. And Israel now has no right to the land that they're in, present Israel, they say. Because it's been fulfilled, you see. As far as um, the nation of Israel that comes from Abraham, well, they've had their day. They apostatized. They went shipped off into different places in uh, the ancient Middle East, and they've had their day too. And God has fulfilled his covenants with them. The only real aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, we're told, that means anything today is this aspect of through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, and uh, that's through Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Abraham, and the church that is in him. That's how that's fulfilled. So there's no more expectation for promises to be fulfilled to Israel. In fact, such people, good people, but I think mistaken people, say the church is actually the Israel of God nowadays. So if you're looking for Israel, God's Israel, look at the church, they tell us. There's no need to look at those Jews. No need to look at Israelites. No need to look to Jerusalem and the area around it. So I bring you back in conclusion here to what I said about Abraham. Get up out of your country to a land that I will show you. Abraham did what God told him even though God did not fill in many details for him. But finally, God gave him these Promises. Abraham believed God. He believed that God would be as good as his word, as good as his covenants. And I think he would have been terribly disappointed to hear that, oh, God's fulfilled all of those things back even before the time of Christ. I want to offer another hope, another way of reading these covenants on these promises. And that is that just as 
we see an obstacle in chapter 11 and verse 30 with Sarah being without child and being barren, an obstacle that God had to overcome. So any obstacle that we think, you know, gets in the way of God fulfilling his covenants to Abraham in a literal way of land, of greatness of the nation. And these, by the way, get expanded. Those are God's problems, but he will fulfill his oaths to Abraham. Israel will be a great nation in the full sense of that word. They will be given the promised land in perpetuity, not just for a a short amount of time. And even the third part, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, will be fulfilled not just through Jesus Christ, although, of course, everything revolves around him, as we will see, but through Israel. Through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed in, yes, Jesus Christ, but also in the ministry of Israel when they are redeemed in the future, they will be a magnet for the nations. And so in a more literal sense, the nation will be the cause of blessing for all of the other nations on the world. I know I've given you kind of bare bones this morning, but there's more to come. But these are, you know, bare bones promises. But they are God's promises. And as we will see, he ratifies these through a very carefully conceived covenant oath. But I don't want us to think that God has fulfilled, completely fulfilled these promises. He hasn't. What I want you to think is that he will. Just the same way that God will fulfill his promises literally to you in Jesus Christ, he will fulfill these promises to Israel, to Abraham. Let's pray. Gracious Father, messages such as these challenge us to have the faith of Abraham, who interpreted you literally and believed that you would deliver exactly what you told him you would do. We are to have that same faith, even though we don't have all of the answers, and even though we might want to contrive a system of understanding that uh, twists what your oaths actually said, or circumvents them, or, or just says that they were fulfilled thousands of years ago, when really they weren't. Father, we look to you as a God who means what he says. He means what he says 
to Abraham and he means what he says to us. And I pray, Lord, that we will have Abraham's faith in those words and leave any difficulties and any seeming obstacles to you. Your God, this is a a, uh, plan that you've had since the foundation of the world. And it will come to pass exactly as you have said. We thank you that you are a God of your word, a God that we can have faith in. In Jesus' name, amen.